All right, guys, so Nick and I actually have some very exciting news for you guys from our personal lives, but also unfortunately may affect some of the podcasting that we're going to be doing over the next couple of months. Yes, there will be some uh, audiophile babies, I guess, Faye, <laughs> coming to join the Kriegs or a coffee family. <laughs> um, and so kind of for the month of October, you won't be hearing our voices for kind of anything live as we'll be adding some other new additions to our own lives. Yes. So while we didn't plan it this way, we'll be having our respective uh, newborns sometime in the months of October and November. Um, and so we'll be taking a little bit of a maternity slash paternity break. But don't despair. <laughs> we will have kind of some of our top episodes waiting for you during that time period and sort of the run up to Kriags. Um, so be sure to continue to listen in and rest assured we will be back with you as soon as we're able, a little bit more tired, but hopefully just as excited to share with you the latest and greatest in OBGYN come a little later on. All right, Nick. So it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN. And we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Kriogs over, over coffee. coffee. All right, so we're back today and we're kind of going to venture into a topic that for some reason we didn't talk about however long ago it was that we talked about HIV, but is a really important one. And that's pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for HIV. So Faye, what exactly are our learning objectives? Yeah, so today we're going to understand the burden of HIV disease in the United States and the role of PrEP as a strategy to reduce it. We're also going to identify patients who should receive PrEP prescriptions and discussions, and then finally be able to prescribe and monitor appropriate PrEP regimens. Um, the reading for today, if you guys would like to follow along, are the ACOG June 2022 Practice Advisory on PrEP and the ACOG Committee Opinion 595 on PrEP. There's also a CDC webpage on the PrEP itself. And of course, if you want to prepare yourself for this episode beforehand, um, you can go ahead and listen to our old episodes on HIV and pregnancy and HIV and GYN care, which we will link on our website. So start us off, Nick, you know, what is PrEP and why is it needed? Yeah. So really, you no know, PREPS is an acronym. It stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And Pre-exposure prophylaxis in this context really specifically refers to preventing HIV. 
Um, this is the use of antiretroviral medications in individuals who do not have HIV but are at risk for it for some reason. And PrEP has actually been around for quite a while. It's been recommended by the CDC since 2012. The reason that PrEP is important is that HIV really remains a significant public health problem in the United States and around the world. Now, if we talk about just the United States impacts, there are 1.2 million people in the U.S. that have HIV in 2021, and 87% of those persons are aware of their diagnosis. About 36,000 people receive a new HIV diagnosis every year, and heterosexual contact actually accounts for about 22% of all of those diagnoses, and injection drug use accounts for another 7% of those diagnoses. Um, so I I think one of the misconceptions that the CDC has continuously tried to clear up is that HIV is not a concern, particularly for heterosexual women. And that's not true. And that's part of what kind of the campaign for PrEP is really about, is trying to expand that to folks who are not just men who have sex with men, but trans persons as well as women. The majority of new infections occurred during the reproductive years as well, which is why it's important for us as OBGYNs to know about it. About 20,000 of those 36,000 diagnoses per year occur in people under the age of 35. And then certainly persons of color and trans persons are disproportionately affected in the population, and PrEP can be really part of a strategy or solution to help fight inequity. And then finally, you know, it's good that we're back talking about PrEP and really because it's effective and then it's also underutilized. Now, only about 23% of people who could benefit from PrEP are prescribed it, so there's lots of room for improvement there. We're going to talk more about efficacy later, but in one word, it works. <laughs> and then finally, you know, is kind of if we think about this from a public health perspective, the CDC has something called the End the HIV Epidemic Initiative that they're going through right now. And really their goal is to increase PrEP coverage of persons who could benefit from it from, again, that 23% up to 50% by the year 2025. So again, we have lots of work to do. Um, but hopefully today you feel a little bit more comfortable bringing it up with your patients and prescribing it if you need to. So Faye, I promised that we were going to talk about efficacy. How effective is PrEP? So like you said, Nick, uh, PrEP is, is very effective. Um, but you know, don't just take our word for it. We are going to provide you with some uh, data. So there are some major trial data specifically in heterosexual couples. And you know, while I think um, certainly HIV has a large impact on other populations, such as trans persons, um, as well as people who are not in heterosexual relationships, I think some of this data is still potentially applicable. So um, there are a, a, a bunch of studies that came out in 2012, the first of which is the TDF2 study group that was published um, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, this was a randomized controlled trial in Botswana, randomizing patients to daily tenofovir and tricitabine uh, regimen or placebo. Um, and so just to kind of remind ourselves, those two medications are both reverse transcriptase inhibitors um, with the brand names of Truvada or Discovi, which you may have heard of. Um, essentially, over 1,200 men and women underwent randomization. 45% of these were women. And then they were followed for a median of 1.1 years, but a max of 3.7 years. Now, nine persons in the treatment group and 24 persons in the placebo group overall became infected. 
and the estimated efficacy was 62.2%. There was a higher rate of nausea, vomiting, and dizziness in the treatment group, but but there was not long enough follow-up data to really determine long-term safety data. The next study we wanted to talk about is Partners Prep Study Team, which was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a randomized controlled trial in Kenya and Uganda for HIV-1 serodiscordant heterosexual couples, uh, meaning that one uh, person of the couple was HIV-1 positive and the second was not. And there were three arms. So um, they were either given daily tenofovir, daily combination tenofovir, emtricitabine, or placebo. Over 4,700 couples were followed, and in 38% of the couples, the seronegative partner was female. Overall, there was 17 infections in the tenofovir group, 13 in the combo drug group, and then 52 in the placebo group, which showed a risk reduction of 67% overall with tenofovir alone, and then 75% with the combo drug. And overall, the rates of serious adverse events were similar across all groups. So again, showing quite um, good efficacy overall. Lastly, there is the FEMPREP study group, which was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was a randomized controlled trial in multiple countries in Africa. Um, over 2,000 HIV-negative women um, were randomized to nafavir, emtricitabine, or placebo daily over two years. And we found that there was 33 infections in the combo drug group and 35 in the placebo drug group. And there was no difference. The reason that they hypothesized why there was no difference was that overall the adherence was quite poor. So the pill count data suggests that 88% of the medications were taken. The drug level testing suggested that the target plasma level was only identified in about 25% of the participants that were actually tested. So really it just shows that a daily pill regimen can be very, very challenging. So the CDC currently says that PrEP is 99% effective in reducing the risk of HIV acquisition from sexual activity and 74% effective in reducing risk of HIV acquisition from IV drug use when they are taken as prescribed. All right, Nick, so that I think is just a very long way for us to say that PrEP is very effective. So now that we've talked about that, let's talk about who should receive PrEP. Yeah, so, you know, The patients that we think about certainly with PrEP are those at the highest risk, right? And this is the so-called serodiscordant couple, a patient who's in a partnership with a known male sexual partner that's infected with HIV. And presumably, if we're talking just in heterosexual norms here, the female sexual partner is unaffected. Um, This is somebody who certainly should be offered PrEP. Other high-risk candidates where PrEP should be prescribed include patients who engage in sexual activity within a high-risk HIV prevalence area or a high-risk social network, and particularly with risk factors such as limited or no condom use, um, a diagnosis of other STIs, the use of IV drugs or having alcohol dependence or both of those factors, a patient who's incarcerated, or a patient who exchanges sex for commodities such as drugs, shelter, food, or money. But really, you know, if your patient is sexually active and they have a partner with unknown HIV status, or if the patient's had a bacterial sexually transmitted infection within the last six months, it's a good idea to at least discuss PrEP with those patients. 
The CDC actually has a really simple flow sheet for determining if PrEP prescriptions are immediately appropriate versus whether a discussion can be had about PrEP and prescriptions deferred. But really, you should start to bring this up in your armamentarium of counseling, if you will, with many of your sexually active patients. And really, one of the kind of populations that has been historically avoided in these discussions but shouldn't be our adolescents. The ACOG practice advisory that is linked on our website for reading today actually was a limited update that in part encouraged PrEP discussion in adolescence, with the CDC noting that PrEP is reasonable for anybody who is above 35 kilograms or 77 pounds. Again, we'll have those flow sheets from the CDC on our website, but really I think one of the most remarkable things to me in reviewing this is that there are a lot of patients, honestly, where PrEP should be part of our routine counseling and discussion. All right, so now let's say, Faye, we have the discussion, so we do that part of our work. Um, we want to prescribe PrEP, so how do we do that? Yeah, so before we can prescribe PrEP, we really need to do our preparation, if you will, um, to make sure that PrEP is appropriate. So uh, first, we're going to determine the baseline HIV status of the patient with testing, because of course, if the patient is already positive for HIV, then they're going to need actual treatment and not pre-exposure to prophylaxis, because we're not going to be prophylaxing in this case. Um, remember, if they've had a potential HIV exposure or acute HIV infection symptoms in the prior four weeks, they may need to actually get retested before determining if they are positive because their um, serologies may not come back positive at that point. The next step is then to determine STI status or sexually transmitted infection status for other infections such as gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis to make sure that you don't need to treat for those infections as well. And then we need to assess for a few things. The first is hepatitis B status. The reason for this is because emtricitabine and tenofovir can be used to treat hepatitis B. And it's important to test for this because stopping the medicine suddenly in an infected person with hepatitis B can actually lead to rebound hepatitis. And so if hepatitis B is found or a patient is known to be hepatitis B positive, then they need to be counseled about this risk. And then they need to have their LFTs and H, um, hepatitis B viral loads uh, assessed if they discontinue PrEP. We also need to assess kidney function. Oral tenofovir can cause some minor renal damage and very rarely acute renal failure. And so if someone has a um, creatinine clearance level of greater than 60 milliliters per minute, it is okay to proceed with oral PrEP. And if they have a creatinine clearance of greater than 30 milliliters per minute, then it's okay to proceed with injectable PrEP, which we'll talk more about later. The last thing is to assess lipid profile. Oral PrEP may cause changes in the lipid profile, and so a baseline assessment should be performed with triglycerides. Now, same-day prescribing of PrEP is okay for most patients as um, when these labs are drawn, but we don't prescribe in patients where testing can't be obtained at all. Patients with concerning history for acute HIV infection or patients where they have known renal disease or associated conditions or without confirmed means of contact for discussing lab results after they have started the prep. All right, so we've done our preparation, Nick. We've done all of these labs. We've potentially now want to prescribe the actual prep for the patient. So what type of medications for prep are available and how do we then monitor these patients? 
So there are a couple of ways that you can do PrEP, and the two primary are with daily oral medications or with an injection medication. The daily oral medications are the ones you mentioned before, Faye, Truvada or Discovy. Both of those are combinations of emtricitabine and tenofovir, um, though the tenofovir component is compounded a little bit differently between those two drugs. Truvada specifically has been approved by the FDA for use for PrEP in heterosexual women, as well as men who have sex with men and trans women. Discovy has only been approved for men who have sex with men and for trans women. It's not for heterosexual women. So really in the OBGYN context, probably most of the time if we're prescribing PrEP and it's oral PrEP, we're going to be talking about Truvada. Patients who are prescribed daily oral PrEP should undergo some monitoring. Those patients should have HIV testing about every three months. They should have syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia testing approximately every six months. They should also have a creatinine clearance estimate every six months and a lipid panel yearly, again, to monitor for some of those things that Faye talked about earlier with respect to changes that may occur with these medications. Injectable PrEP is a relatively new medication. It was approved by the FDA in December of 2021, and it's injectable cabotegravir, um, or the brand name is Apritude. Apologies for any mispronunciations on those things. The FDA approved this for heterosexual women, men who have sex with men, and trans women at risk of HIV infection for the purposes of PrEP. And the injection schedule for Apritude is two injections separated by one month apart, followed by a Q two-month injection. Um, so again, this is one of those things that's kind of nice if you think about a you know akin to our context usually of like a daily birth control pill versus Depo-Provera, um, where you don't have to remember to take that same medication every day. The patients who opt for injectable PrEP should be monitored with recommended surveillance STI testing, where HIV testing occurs with every injection visit, and then gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis should be assessed about every six months. Now, the final bit of PrEP you may have seen or heard about is something that is um, called the 211 method of oral PrEP, or something that is coitally timed PrEP, um, or just in time PrEP. This is an event-driven form of PrEP um, that can be used by adults who are men who have sex with men. Um, but this is not a recommended form of PrEP by the CDC and is not actually FDA approved at this time. 211 oral PrEP has not been studied in heterosexual women or trans patients. Um, and so really that's all that we're going to mention it is that you may hear about it, but it's not one that we should be recommending routinely to our patients. Okay, Faye. So um, I think we have to be good maternal fetal medicine folks here and kind of answer the yeah. <laughs> last question um, is that say we want to prescribe PrEP or we have a patient who is on PrEP and they become pregnant. What do we need to know? Yeah. So, you know, um, women who are seeking to conceive or patients who are pregnant or breastfeeding can still use oral PrEP. Um, and it's important to understand that HIV um, is undetectable and untransmissible or the U 
you principle, which is basically women whose sexual partners have a viral load of less than 200 copies per milliliter have effectively no increased risk of sexual acquisition. So if their partner remains on maximally effective antiretroviral therapy and has undetectable viral loads, PrEP may actually not provide additional protective benefit for some of these patients. So it's important to counsel your patient about that in determining whether or not they want to continue PrEP or use PrEP. PrEP can be continued if desired, and an antiretroviral pregnancy registry is available to prospectively and anonymously submit information to obtain further data. Um, This is located at www.apregistry.com, and we'll put that link on our website as well. Um, what if our listeners want to have some more further information about, you know, prep for HIV and things like that, Nick? I know we obviously can't go into every aspect of it on our podcast. No, we certainly can't. But again, the CDC has a lot of great resources, and in particular, they maintain a really extensive but simple and helpful provider's guide that's worth looking through to implement your own PrEP practice. Um, So we'll link to that on our website. They also mention that there's a National Clinician Consultation Center at 855-448-7737, or the easy way to remember that number, 855-HIV-PREP. And that's a hotline that's available from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, where you can get live clinician consultation for testing, prevention, treatment, and pre-exposure prophylaxis. And we didn't talk about post-exposure prophylaxis on the show, um, but it's also a place where you can get information about that. The ACOG Practice Advisory also notes that PrEP is now widely covered with state Medicaid as preventive health care, and medication assistance is actually pretty widely available, so cost should not be something to dissuade you from prescribing. At the end of the Practice Advisory, there's a huge list of resources, as well as a really handy website that helps you navigate sort of the the maze of getting additional coverage on a state-by-state basis, so check that out. All right, Faye, I think that that does it for this episode on pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for HIV. Why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we first talked about the fact that pre-exposure prophylaxis is an antiretroviral medication for individuals specifically for the prevention of HIV um, who are at risk for it but don't actually have it. And this has been recommended by the CDC since 2012. This is really important because HIV does remain a significant public health problem in the United States. Um, and the majority of new infections occur during those reproductive years. And specifically, you know, we as OBGYNs treat many of those patients um, who may become infected um, who are under the age of 35. We also know that PrEP is quite effective, but it is underutilized and only about 23% of people who can benefit from PrEP are actually prescribed for it. And it is part of the CDC's and the HIV epidemic initiative with the hope to increase PrEP coverage to 50% by 2025. In a word, PrEP is very effective. We reviewed three randomized trials that came out in 2012, all published in the New England Journal, and we'll have sort of the highlights from those trials on our website. But it's important just to remember that the CDC says currently that PrEP is 99% effective in reducing HIV acquisition from sexual activity and 74% effective in reducing risk of HIV acquisition from IV drug use when it is taken as prescribed. Patients who should receive PrEP are often those that we think are at the highest risk of acquiring HIV, the so-called serodiscordant couple, a patient who is known to be 
non-affected by HIV who's engaging in intercourse with a partner that does have HIV. Other high-risk candidates where PrEP should be prescribed are those who engage in sexual activity within a high HIV prevalence risk area or social network, and particular patients who have limited or no condom use, diagnosis of other STIs, IV drug use or alcohol dependence, incarceration, or the exchange of sex or commodities such as drug, shelter, food, or money. If your patient, though, is sexually active with a partner of unknown HIV status or if they've had a bacterial STI in the last six months, it's a good idea to at least discuss PrEP. And that's appropriate not just for your adult patients, but for your adolescent patients, too. PrEP is okay for anybody over 35 kilograms or 77 pounds. We'll have the algorithms from the CDC on our website about patients who should be discussed for PrEP or those who should be prescribed PrEP outright. In terms of prescribing PrEP, we first need to prepare for the prescription, and this includes things like determining baseline HIV status, determining STI status, assessing hepatitis B status, kidney function, and lipid profile. It is okay to prescribe PrEP on the same day that the patients are getting these labs, but we try not to prescribe these medications for patients where testing can't be done, um, there's already concerning history for acute HIV infection or renal disease, or for those patients where we cannot contact for the results of their laboratory studies. The medications and monitoring for PrEP include possible daily oral PrEP. So this is the medication Truvada or Descovy. Truvada specifically is for heterosexual women as well as men who have sex with men and trans women. And Descovy has been approved for only men who have sex with men and trans women. Patients should still be monitored with HIV testing every three months, and they also need to have other STI testing every six months. They also need to have creatinine clearance um, tests done and lipid panels done as well. There's also an injectable form of PrEP, which is relatively new from December of 2021, and this is known as Apertude. The FDA did approve this for heterosexual women, men who have sex with men, and trans women who are at risk of HIV infection. Patients should also be monitored, again, with HIV testing at every injection visit, as well as STI testing. And the last is this 211 oral PrEP, which is an event-driven or coitally timed PrEP. And while this can be used for adult men who have sex with men, it is not recommended by the CDC and it is not FDA approved at this time. Finally, if your patient becomes pregnant on PrEP, know that women who conceive or become pregnant or are breastfeeding are able to use oral PrEP. Again, remember in HIV care, there is this undetectable, untransmissible, or UU principle. So women whose sexual partner has a viral load of under 200 copies per ml have effectively no risk of sexual acquisition. If their partner remains on maximally effective antiretroviral therapy and has an undetectable viral load, PrEP really may not confer any additional protective benefit. So it's up to the patients and a shared decision-making consultation to be able to continue PrEP or not um, but if PrEP is continued, an antiretroviral pregnancy registry is available to be able to submit further data. The CDC maintains an extensive provider's guide that's worth looking through, and we'll have that linked on our website. Again, remember, there's also the National Clinician Consultation Center available on weekdays, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m., 855-HIV-PREP. Um, and then the ACOG Practice Advisory has tons of additional resources, including resources that are state by state with respect to coverage assistance. Check that out. Get your patients prescribed PrEP. All right, Faye. Well, I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on X, formerly known as Twitter, at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website at www.creagsrivercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this, or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, creagsrivercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>